Welcome to another edition of Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelshots, Eric Kogelshots, Brian Andrew Jasinski, and Alex Knight. So we have a lot to get through today, actually. We're going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in healthcare and the medical community. And this, I imagine, will be sort of a tip of the iceberg kind of conversation because there is so much to talk about here, so much advancement, certainly can delve into a lot of different directions and trends. We wanted to at least start the conversation because we as a firm do a lot of work in the healthcare sector, have done a lot of work as individuals in the healthcare sector. And it's something that permeates almost every discussion in popular culture, in popular discourse. Um, And, you know, if you looked at election data, it was one of the top issues that obviously people are very concerned about as we move um, out of midterm elections, which happened this week. And so we thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about it. One of the things that I've noticed is that there are a lot of true crime podcasts that are happening right now. It's one of the top categories when you look at entertainment-based podcasts um, here in the United States. And One of the podcasts that's been out for the last few months, I think it came out at the beginning of October, um, that's consistently in the top 10 ever since it was released is this podcast called Dr. Death from Wondery. And, you know, uh, good or bad, I am one of these true crime junkies. I really love, um, you know, unpacking stories in that way. It's really interesting for me to understand at a deeper level, you know, the ins and outs of um, how how these situations happen um, could be a product of my own paranoia of wanting to make sure that I keep myself safe in every situation. <laughs> but um, but I, I was really interested in this Dr. Death podcast. I, we actually have a good friend who's a neurosurgeon down in Dallas. So after doing his fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic where we got to know him, um, he moved down to Dallas. And this story also piqued my interest because he moved down there around the same time and, you know, I sort of had a personal connection to it. And I started listening to it and the story is so unbelievable. On one level, you just think about how did this happen? And in a nutshell, um, it chronicles a neurosurgeon down in the Dallas area around the year 2015, where he proceeded to either severely maim or actually in two cases, kill patients in the operating room. And the podcast, you know, goes into great detail on what was done. It's pretty gruesome. Definitely not for uh, squeamish, uh, sort of faint of heart types here. What it talks about is there were so many people around him. He worked at multiple hospitals. There were there were nurses and PAs and other doctors raising their hands and saying, um, we have a problem here. And even with all of that, the checks and balances in our medical system were not strong enough to prevent this doctor from, quote, doing no harm. So I think it's an interesting conversation about our system. You know, they talk about the medical data bank that exists and how it, it is possible to confidentially report a doctor if you see something in the operating room and you know this person should not be operating. But this person, um, in this case, Dr. Christopher Dunch, who's profiled on this podcast, was never reported to the data bank. I think there. I think towards the end of the podcast, they may have said that there was one person that eventually reported him. And it's important to note that our friend is not Doctor Death. No, no our friend is probably the best surgeon in Dallas. I'll give him that. <laughs> I've, not that I've ever gone to him, but you know, I, I would expect him to be. What I'm interested in coming off this podcast: are two things. What does the medical system do? on the heels of this. And let me just back up for one second. The reason why this case was a landmark case is because while all these medical practitioners had tried to work through the traditional channels of medical malpractice, 
and have this doctor's license revoked. That was not successful. The only thing that stopped this surgeon was the legal community eventually being brought in by two of the surgeons in the Dallas area that unfortunately were aware of some of the outcomes that Dr. Dunch was happening. Go, you know, so these two doctors came in, spoke with the DA, spoke with the assistant DA, and had him criminally prosecuted for things that had happened in the operating room. And so that's why this is a landmark case. He is the first doctor who is now sitting in jail for the rest of his life for crimes committed in the operating room. Short of prosecuting doctors, which also has a number of difficult implications to it and puts a lot of stress on the medical community that is on top of what already is there. You know, the high stakes that are there anytime you go into an operating room and open up a patient. There's a pro and con there. But short of doing that, what do we do to slow down bad doctors? And what can we do as patients? to protect ourselves. So I think those are the two questions that that have come out of both in the media and just lay persons listening to this podcast. You know, what do you do with this? And, you know, I've spent a lot of time after I finished the podcast a couple weeks ago just researching and seeing what's surfacing out of this. And quite honestly, I don't think there are a lot of answers. There's a big conversation around patient advocacy. I know in the past, Eric has actually done research on the journey of patients as they move through a hospital system and what it means to advocate for yourself and also have have an advocate with you um, and how critical that is. In context of the, the patient journey, Hallie's questions are really important because it's the first stage. It's making sure that patients are educated, informed, and as Hallie said, being advocates for themselves and asking those questions because they really have to do it themselves. Others may not do that. I think that's really hard because as a patient, you know, your mind is going in a number of different directions. You're focused, you know, sometimes you're in pain, sometimes you're not able to actually process the information on a rational level. It can be very difficult to advocate for yourself. So here's the thing. So where do we go from here? Obviously, this is like a case of the medical system going wrong. But how can we improve health overall so that we don't end up in a situation where potentially we need surgery? You know, what are some of the things that we can be doing? I know, Alex, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about prevention. Yes. For a lot of people in the medical and science community, genetic engineering is a hot topic right now. You can immediately think of the term designer babies, which I'm sure we've all heard of in some context. But basically, just a little background you know, humans have been genetically engineering things since forever, since we started farming. Like a banana and an apple today look totally different than what they did even 100 to 200 years ago, just based on the way we, the way we want things to grow and just keeping things uh, fresh and on the shelves longer. We've been tinkering with DNA once we discovered DNA since the 60s, putting DNA into bacteria, plants, animals to test. In the 1980s, we created a microbe that absorbed oil. And then in 1994, the first GMO was created called the Flavor Saver Tomato. So like I mentioned earlier, basically keeping tomatoes on the shelf longer and um, preventing them from rotting so quickly. So GMOs could be a totally different episode, but we're not going to dive into that. The most kind of recent evolution in this technology is called CRISPR. And I don't want to get too much into the technology of it, but Basically, CRISPR allows us to edit the DNA of living cells and organisms. It's lowering costs by a ton, and things that took years before can take weeks to edit the DNA of an organism. So this basically has the potential to change humanity forever. So Alex, obviously there are a lot of different implications based on what you've talked about as far as genetically modifying fruits, vegetables, and even our, our bodies. But I'm wondering you know, what your thoughts are in the context of this podcast. So what does this mean for health? 
we've basically um, inserted DNA into rats and have gotten rid of 48% of HIV cells in rats. So that can be applied to humans. And then this can be like applied to other genetic diseases before humans are born. That also leads into people you know, questioning what designer babies are and choosing the genes that they want for their kids, whether it's eye color or you know, height and weight and things like that. But obviously we can prevent harmful diseases and as this technology really ramps up in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we could see a totally different gene pool for humans in the future. I'm fascinated by this topic, but I think the two issues that I have with it are ethics and access. So ethics, obviously, is this right? Is this what God intended for mankind? And then two, access. This becomes a situation where those that are affluent have access to this type of medical care and those in poverty have no opportunity. Definitely. It's, it's going to create another social divide at some point unless it's uh, universally accessible. And then, yeah, we just have to decide as not only a medical community, but just as a society, is this right? Is this where we want? humanity to to go in the future and it's it's already being experimented it's already being done right now there are huge labs of mice that are being tested on and the implications of crispr so it's it's here the future is now one thing that comes to mind for me however is the fact like you were speaking about alex earlier bananas and apples and how they've evolved because of man i i can't help but to believe also in the element of human evolution and how we as a human race from the prehistoric caveman to where we are now wouldn't the human body i'm curious if the human race would actually begin no matter how much testing they're doing what sort of evolution would the body begin to naturally reject and you know mm. what what doors is that going to open where mm. it does seem perhaps like this genetically perfect human child but not being able to forecast the 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 downsides like right you know, like it could potentially make modern medicine null and void exactly for example it's Absolutely. like everything we're seeing with like you know antibiotic resistant viruses and things like that well when you change the dna of a human mm-hmm. you might become resistant to all sorts of treatments that we are we previously Absolutely. or currently you or know, use. or the development of new diseases that mm-hmm. you know it's almost starting you know Back to, you know, we're starting over at the development of penicillin, you know, where mm-hmm. it'd have to be this very almost archival approach to how to treat these quote-unquote new creatures. I mean, that's what they yeah, technically are. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. That's the crazy part is, like, what denotes a human at that point. Correct. You know, how right. much, you know, how much no, are human This reminds me of the you? movie Gattaca. <laughs> I just re- always remember totally. the line in that movie that Uma Thurman would say, and she would be, was shocked when she meets Ethan Hawke and says, oh, you're a god child, you know. So there was this difference between the those that were created and those that were born, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Such a good movie. I've never seen it. Fantastic. Like it. I've never seen it either. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Put but, it on the list. <laughs> but yeah, no, CRISPR is exciting and terrifying at the same time. And you know, it's ironic because I think it's been developed to solve problems like genetic diseases um, to prevent things before a baby is born. And then also GMOs, but it's also like Pandora's box. Absolutely. So half of us at Charcomeno are going to begin building the bunker, and the other half are going to be genetically modifying ourselves, <laughs> and we'll report back after we go through this experiment. <laughs> Okay, 
So we've already talked about stage one, which is education and information. We've talked about stage two, which is prevention. Now we want to talk about stage three, which is really health and wellness and how to live a healthy life. So I don't think it's any surprise that wearables are really kind of the the now of healthcare and personalized tracking and data and how we're using our, our insights on ourselves to drive our own health and well-being. Um, but Alex, I know you've been thinking a little bit about this as well. You know, what what are you finding out? So the rise of smartwatches and wearable tech is very much upon us. I feel like I'm, when I'm walking around, I see almost everyone wearing a Fitbit or a Garmin device or, you know, an Apple Watch. Um, according to Fortune, smartwatch sales are gaining momentum and has to do a lot with the popularity of the Apple Watch and also cheaper um, Asian devices. So sales should hit 71 million devices this year, but we'll just about double in 2022. Wow. So there'll be a pretty big impact in everyone's life. Um, And so, you know, we saw the Apple Watch Series 4 come out recently. And, you know, they have so many new, like, health-focused features, such as, you know, being able to take an ECG. You know, they have heart rate monitors. It can detect if you fall and alert your medical contact and call 911 if you don't um, get up within, like, a minute. You know, you can track your sleep, you can track your daily activity tracking, or you can track your daily activity, it has GPS, all that kind of cool stuff. So it's an extension of our smartphones, which already has health stuff on it, but this becomes a little more accessible, it's a little more fashionable. But basically the question is, do smartwatches really, and wearable tech, do they really lead people to living healthier lives? Basically there are so many other factors that go into it like your diet and exercise like a smartwatch isn't going to make you change your diet and your overall lifestyle make decisions for you right it can though it is a motivator i think and it can prompt you like you can set your your device to remind you to stand up every one for a minute once an hour or breathing exercises or it gives you goals and things like that so you know one example i found of someone someone's life being directly impacted by an Apple Watch, for example, was this 76-year-old man had, he noticed, um, he was in church, and he noticed on his Apple Watch, he got an, he got an alert on his watch, and um, it notified him of a spike in his heart rate. And, you know, he was a little skeptical. He was kind of thinking, you know, whatever, but I've seen what the Apple Watch can do, and, you know, it can be super accurate. So he went to the hospital, and he went to his doctor, and they took him to a cardiologist. It turned out that two of the three main arteries were completely blocked, and the other one was 90% blocked. Wow. wow. So this led to a complete lifestyle change for him, like based on what he was eating and his exercise habits. So, it, you know, you could say that the Apple Watch here saved this guy's life. And it'd be interesting to kind of know, you know, and again, Alex, because this technology... You know, it's been around for a little while, but it's definitely evolving in, you know, what features are are embedded into these devices as well as adoption of these devices. So I don't know that we even have a, a good handle on how much wearable trackers health devices are affecting people's lives yet. But it'd be really interesting to watch which age group is the most impacted by this technology. So what you're talking about is preventing, you know, potentially diseases that are more detectable in adults or more prevalent in adults. 
Um, but obviously there are other benefits to this. You know, we've seen, unfortunately, um, children that are on the spectrum going missing, and maybe there are indicators that we could track that would help to avoid things like that from happening. There's also diseases that, you know, are persistent in childhood, like juvenile onset diabetes and things like that, where obviously, you know, wearables could be helpful in detecting issues with blood sugar and whatnot. So I think that, you know, it could potentially really change things for different types of, you know, not just age groups, but, you know, people that are affected with different conditions. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, on the other hand, obviously, part of the discussion is, is more tech really a good thing in your life? So this, this problem of addiction to technology and, you know, with wearable devices, you know, is that helping or hurting us overall, when you look at it through the lens of also mental health? Um, And then, of course, you know, there's, there's a, um, there's an element of radiation with any wearable device and, and putting that into your system. So what, what is, you know, what's the trade-off? And I have not, I know, you know, Alex, that you had done some research. I had looked into it as well a little bit. It's not conclusive yet because these devices are still too new. I mean, we're not even 10 years into this. So um, as far as like the modern version of a lot of these devices are concerned. So it'll be something to watch. On top of that, you know, the new iOS for your iPhone has this thing called screen time. So it shows you how much time you're spending on your phone each day and each week. And it shows you what apps you're using constantly. Mm-hmm. The question is, do they include the Apple Watch there? Because mm. I know you can you can have a setting to show, like if you have an iPad, mm-hmm. it'll show you how much time you're spending on your iPad, but how much screen time you're spending on your Apple Watch. And so that kind of could lead into the addiction of technology too. This kind of goes back to the point that we made in a previous podcast about the future of screens. And the fact that, you know, there is all this discussion about the fact that in the future people might not be sitting in front of a computer and what does that look like in terms of your interface with technology. So a lot of people right now think, oh, I don't have as much screen time. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm getting email alerts on my watch. Well, that still counts. Mm-hmm. It's just Definitely. the evolution of it's the just technology a smaller itself. screen. Exactly. <laughs> Do you think a lot of it, to answer your question from earlier, Alex, is it, it is shiny and new technology. So it is a trend. And. Um, you know, the irony behind all of this, the fact that we have all of the these reminders and this monitoring and ability to, quote unquote, live a healthier lifestyle. Yet here we are in a place where people are the unhealthiest and most overweight that we've ever been, you know. And so if you think even just 40, 50, 60 years ago when none of this technology existed yet, and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier with genetically modified food and just diet habits that you know the modern world has afforded. Um, I do think a lot of it is a trend. You know, going just back a few years, it, it could have been applied to you know the, what the newest shoe was or the newest exercise program was that somebody might indulge in for you know it's that old adage of like you know in the new year that everybody's you know, working out for at least those first three weeks and then it fades away. So I do think a lot of that shiny penny of this technology is leading to the success of it. And it'd be interesting to know, you know, once somebody begins to engage with it, what is the lifespan of their... It's funny to say that, Brian, because I've been thinking about the Peloton. We know so many people that have purchased one recently and I, I definitely think they're cool. There's no doubt about it. But I wonder, is it just another example of that workout equipment like the Bowflex or the Nordic Track that becomes extremely popular and then all of a sudden it sits in someone's basement and starts collecting dust. Absolutely. It, it really does come down to the cult factor of it and the, the, the thrill of the curiosity and wanting to be 
in particular, the Peloton more than any of those is bringing this whole that idea of community gaming in a sense yeah. to the the world of fitness. And that idea of gaming is so true. So when I first got into running, I was using Nike Plus all the time, and I still use that. And actually, Hal and I just ran a marathon, uh, the the Marine Corps marathon, and just I was like using casually it. drop that into conversation. You know, no big deal. But um, while I was running it, I was actually using my Nike Plus. And then when I was running, all of a sudden I saw someone holding a sign that said, if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen. And if you don't know what Strava is, it's similar to Nike Plus, but it really works across any type of workout. Um, and I did download it. I do like it. But the thing about it, it goes back to what Brian said. It's just another gaming platform, really. It's a reward system for motivation that holds you accountable due to the exposure among your peers. And I think that's important. It does get you to go and work out, but it just changes the the whole experience. So I find myself not really wanting to engage in those apps anymore. And at the moment when I saw that sign in Strava, I was like, oh man, I should have been using Strava. But when I finished the marathon, my Nike Plus didn't record my run at all. And for a second there, I was bumped and I realized it's not important. I know I did the run. It doesn't matter. So it's just, it's one of those things that I think is changing over time. I think you'll start seeing people jump from these apps and, and move on. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I was a diehard Nike Plus user when I trained for my first marathon over 10 years ago. And this time around, you know, I was more interested in using apps that could actually, you know, especially when you start building up your mileage, looking at apps that can navigate routes that are going to be best for training. And, you know, so many of those apps have changed over the last few years. Um, but to me, you know, I was just less concerned with, with tracking metrics. Of course, that matters more if you're like a professional athlete or somebody who you know is looking to you know beat your time or whatever I'm not that kind of runner so maybe that says something about (laughs) (laughs) says more something about me than it does about um, the category but um, but I am interested to see you know what people you know what metrics people are most dedicated to and and feel are most helpful whether it comes to health or you know performance for athletic endeavors. The other thing I can't help but to think about is all of these devices are gathering this data in this great quest for wellness and health, but I can't help wondering what happens when there is some sort of abnormality or illness that an individual is confronted with. How, in a sense, does this tech then translate itself to diagnosis and treatment from there? The idea of how data can be used in the medical field is so important, especially when we think about the adoption of algorithms like IBM Watson and artificial intelligence. This technology is empowering doctors to have deeper insight and understanding of these diseases so that they are able to diagnose these conditions for patients much quicker than they have ever before and with greater accuracy. But what's really interesting about this is before the healthcare industry dived into the idea of artificial intelligence, they really looked at the idea of how can we improve imaging solutions. A great example of this I just saw recently is called Arteries. It's the world's first medical imaging cloud platform, and it's approved by the FDA. And it's powered by AI, and it's 100% web-based. What's interesting about this is that the typical healthcare professional takes about 30 minutes to look at an MRI and taking that information and make a determination. So that's the human length of time it takes to make that diagnosis, 30 minutes. When you look at what arteries is able to do, they can do the same thing in 15 seconds. So it's just speeding up that process to add an, an incredible acceleration. How is is the ex- user experience, if you will, of the patient 
changing, you know, because I know MRIs are considered such a daunting and in a sense, terrifying experience for people. I know a lot of these MRIs can last for a considerable length of time. And, and granted, there's very, you know, uh, primary approaches that a patient can take, you know, be it headphones or you hear about I- imagery, you know, that they're looking up at. But in terms of the actual experience and the device itself, has that evolved? You know, that hasn't. And it, it's funny you say that because there have been studies about this with children, that they're very scared of these machines and how do they change them to make them more appropriate for children but just in general for any human it's it's just something that's not ideal so that process hasn't changed so obviously there's opportunity for innovation it's this is more on the after side of it in the reading of these actual scans so arteries is a great example of how ai is being adopted into the healthcare field but we're seeing everyone get into it especially the tech companies apple has 54 patents for ai technology solutions microsoft has 73 alphabet has 186 So you can just see that this is increasing over time. Also investment from 2011, companies spent about $33.1 million in this area. And then now in 2017, it's $98.4 million. And these stats are all from Fast Company. So you can just see that dramatic growth. But that said, you have to be a little hesitant about this because when IBM Watson came out, they made a partnership with MD Anderson and they've been working on it for a few years total costs for that project were around $62 million, but MD Anderson canceled the project because it did not meet the goals that they set at the beginning. So $62 million out the window. Um, so MD Anderson is now looking for another partner, and there's been some concern with IBM Watson as how they are going to make this work. With that in mind, we need to think about how AI can be used to empower doctors not replace them. And I do think that's the fear of AI. Everybody looks at it as replacement, the takeover of droids, right? And I do think it is that the important thing that people are, are overlooking is, just like any computer, the extension of knowledge and the, the extension of technology and the further breadth of knowledge that these that this technology provides is what should not be overlooked. Following the stage of diagnosis leads into receiving treatment, recovering, the rehabilitation for the patient. So one area that I think is really fascinating is this idea of personalized vaccines. These are vaccines that are based on the characteristics of each patient's DNA. It's a custom design for each patient. There's a company called BioNTech, and right now they're working on these vaccines. Initially, BioNTech's vaccines took about three months to create. So in order to create a vaccine like that, you have to look at the cancerous tumor, for example, take a biopsy, then do the sequencing of the genome. They then do an analysis of that makeup. And then from there, they design those vaccines. So they were able to do that in about three months. Now they've already gotten down to six weeks. Their goal next year in 2019 is to have 1500 vaccines in one year. But really, if you think about it, the need is much greater. You know, if, if you think about all the various patients that are out there, most of us take similar drugs if you have a, a similar disease or condition. But if we start customizing them, that scale grows immensely. So they really need to focus on how they can scale this in a proper way, still be effective, and create these vaccines that will work for all patients in a customized way. So Eric, what are the implications of personal vaccines? 
the thought is that it's more effective so that it's based on your your dna versus one that works for all people with that same condition so the hope is that it's more effective and people will be able to get through that disease or condition in a way that's more appropriate for their body makeup when you hear it about these vaccines in this context it's one of those moments where you think to yourself why for all of this time have we been assuming that one size fits all absolutely that, that this particular treatment this particular medication this particular course of exercise you know you hear it even going back to exercise how you know different body types different ages different sexes need to engage in different activity to have the most uh, optimized workout for their for their body so naturally that would apply itself to medication and one of the things I, I have been noticing an an uptick in is this whole personalization be it shampoo or makeup or now I'm seeing a lot of uh, custom uh, vitamin kits in a sense you know like this combination of vitamins that's um, you know based on a saliva swab you know created for you so in terms of this whole idea of the personalization of treatment or services that is something that is becoming more and more commercialized especially in this era of social media you know you see these you know where everything is about uh your algorithm and and what your interests are and where you go and how you travel how you eat it's it's all becoming very personalized and so it's definitely being you know from a commerce standpoint that's something that is being embraced and utilized you know in in terms of personalized vaccines i'm super curious about the scalability eric as you mentioned earlier about that i mean no two people are alike so i mean at what point are these is this company going to be efficient in producing these vaccines so that that is really crazy to see how that'll turn out absolutely so if you think about their goal for 2019 1500 people i mean that's a small town. It's a very right? small amount. Yeah. So how is With that over gonna... seven billion people on the planet? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But if you have multiple companies doing this and everyone's hopefully sharing data in an appropriate way, I, I think it could help. But I do think this is one of those areas of innovation that will benefit the patient the most of of many of the things we've talked about so far, is because it's really focused on your unique makeup and how it can improve your your well being. So going back to Brian's idea of, of the personalization and the commercialization of that, it I couldn't help but think of the metaphor of a, a good suit, right? A, a suit that's tailored for your body. You feel different in that than one that doesn't. I mean, I always remember my first suit in college that my parents got me to uh, look for my first job. It was gigantic. It looked like a zoot suit, right? Well, I have a suit now that fits me perfectly, and it's like one of the, I feel like a rock star in it, you know? And I think that translates to, vaccines as well because if it's built and designed and manufactured just for you the implications will be that you will feel better because it's it's not going to miss one little thing precisely yeah you you hear about when you with vitamins your body takes in what it needs and expels what it doesn't so again that word optimize with this approach to treatment or nutrition or nourishment it's it's using everything to the utmost degree that it's designed to be used in your body. You know, these personal vaccines from BioNTech really make me think that they need to partner with a company like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Oh, yeah. Because of the personalization there. So I have personally done a 23andMe kit both for genetic testing and Ancestry. 
and it's super simple process. Um, you just kind of get a kit in the mail, send it back, and then in a few weeks they analyze it. They send you results um, on an app, and they basically test for different variants based on your DNA in your saliva. By doing this, it's kind of given me a good insight into, you know, based on the data that 23andMe has, gives me a good insight into my genetics and health in general. It's very personal because it's only analyzing, it's analyzing you compared to the other data that they have from other people, other participants. What's really interesting about this category of genealogy companies is that they're starting to share that data. As Alex is saying, you know, this is something that any patient would want to share that data because it's going to benefit them. However, there are these companies that are selling the data and some of them are using it, you know, there have been conversations of that data being shared with insurance providers to increase costs for those people that might have conditions. The other thing is we're starting to see that data being provided to law enforcement or investigators to help find murderers and anyone who's committed some type of crime. So it even goes back further in our conversation to the health and wellness apps and collecting the data there and do patients own that information? And is there a way for you to grant access to it for certain companies that you think would benefit your situation, but then also thinking about greater humanity and how you can help others? I think we should be allowed to make that decision, bigger conversation about security, privacy, access, and things like that. But it's a new world. Absolutely. No, definitely. It, it's an extension of smartwatches of what we were talking about earlier. You know, essentially your phone and your smartwatch and whatever else other tech you use, it's basically just data collecting on you. And it's putting all that data into a big, um, it's putting that data into a big pile of data compared to other people to make algorithms better for the company and for the user ultimately. Um, so, you know, doing a 23andMe, you know, saliva kit testing is basically just to me, at least another extension of that. You know, if you are using a, an Apple watch and, you know, you're allowing it, I mean, that's the kind of the whole point. You're allowing it to track your movement when you get up and your sleep and all that. You're already giving them that information. So this is just an extension of it to get more information on yourself. In theory, that's supposed to help you get better insight into your own body and your own lifestyle and make appropriate changes if need be. conversation has provided such an incredible array of examples and case studies of the incredible advances in all things medical and be it through engineering, diagnostics, research, digital technology, robotics. Uh, you know, you hear these stories, you know, Eric, as you were talking about AI or even, uh, you know, you see this footage of, you know, surgeons operating and, and their hands aren't even, are no longer even touching the patient or, you know, if it's through robotics or lasers or computer guided surgeries, you know, taking it really back to something that's very, I guess, for the lack of a better term, brick and mortar is the idea of art therapy. It's a form of psychotherapy where mental health professionals will use art materials or techniques such as painting, drawing, sculpting, um, even writing or movement to help patients explore feelings that not may not be as easily expressed in words. Um, they may not be able to express them in words. Um, and it, it's been finding its place in the mental health profession. But what's so unreal is some states don't even recognize it as its own profession. Um, it's oftentimes it's licensed counselor that will 
quote unquote, use it as a tool. Uh, but there's certainly been more of an effort to increase that the number of art therapists and that recognition. And they find the the profession of art therapy finds themselves at a really ironic intersection. Um, you know, for all of this time, really wanting to make sure that their practice and their discipline is being recognized and being able to be afforded the funding that a high visibility politician or um, somebody in politics would provide, that would be ideal. As I said, the ironic intersection that they find themselves at is the person that has chosen to uh, support and be and and provide that spotlight to the profession of art therapy is Karen Pence, who is Vice President Pence's wife. Suddenly, the profession of art therapists find themselves in this divisive atmosphere, whereas one side is appreciative of the exposure that Karen's initiatives are shining on their profession. However, there's another side that feels that the the policies that are supported by President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence are at odds with their principles, and it hurts the very people that this profession is treating, um, such as immigrants and trauma survivors. The positive side of Karen Pence bringing attention to this profession is that a lot of people argue that um, art art therapy needs to be recognized. Um, For example, there's an estimated 5,500 registered art therapists nationwide compared with over 100,000 psychologists. So, and and about 20% of those art therapists, according to this article in the New York Times by Catherine St. Louis, is that they're clustered in New York and New Jersey. So meaning many patients around the country don't even have access to this treatment, according to the Art Therapy Credentials Board. So the fact that Karen Pence has brought attention to this this profession is a great thing. But then again, that I keep using that word, the irony is this: uh, the profession receives a lot of f- support and funding from the National Endowment of the Arts, which unfortunately is one of the organizations that is facing additional cuts under this particular presidential administration. So the funds from the NEA and the def- Department of Defense pays for a prominent program called Creative Forces, which offers uh, art therapy to soldiers and veterans coping with post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injuries. So, you know, the value of this profession and these services is there. Um, it's It comes down to not only the funding, but the recognition of the profession in terms of its licensing. When it comes to funding, it is, it is essential that we look at that value that art and music therapy provides to the, the patient. I sit on the board for the music settlement, and recently at the annual meeting, there was a student who came in. He was a veteran, probably in his late 60s. And he worked with a teacher at the settlement. And he actually composed a song that she performed on piano. And then the teacher actually sang the words. And it was so emotional. Everyone in the room just felt connected with him. Uh, it was just incredible. And that's just one individual. This is this can be applied to so many different people in so many different situations, whether they're a veteran, someone with autism, um, going through cancer. There are just so many different ways that this benefits someone in need. So the irony is very upsetting because this is an area that definitely deserves the funding. And I hope that other people are able to experience this firsthand because I think it will start to change 
hearts and minds. Education of the profession and the services that it provides to its patients and to those that are engaging in these sessions is knowing that it's it's not something as simple as like they're going to take some time to color and draw you know it's almost like I have a personal connection to this because when I went to art school people would say oh all you must do is you know color and draw (laughs) (laughs) so I understand those misconceptions one of the largest challenges is the lack of an actual state license so it makes it difficult for art therapists to actually bill insurance so Mm -hmm. it's really making sure that this vital service that these therapists are providing are recognized as a medical treatment. It's been known to improve neuropsychiatric symptoms, uh, social behavior, and even self-esteem for people with disorders such as Alzheimer's, uh, as you said, autism. Um, and there's you know these stories, like you said, of, of people who almost find this joy in their medical procedures. Uh, um, again, in this article from the New York Times, they re- referenced a young girl named Sonali who who had made several pieces of artwork um, while she was going through chemo. And her father and the doctor were both, you know, made mention of the fact that she actually would look forward to her treatments. So it really is, you know, that universal that universal language of art being able to translate uh, you know, what would normally be a very trying or difficult situation and, and adding this personal moment to it. Right there, to me, is the proof in the research that much like this personalized vaccinations, personalized technology, something as, as inherent and goes back centuries as you know, creating artwork could be looked at as one of the original personalized therapies that we talked about. Humans have a deep connection to music and art because we're just creative beings. You can go back thousands of years and there's evidence of us creating music and creating art. And clearly art therapy and art gives us a way to express ourselves and a way to kind of calm down and just feel relaxed and and it comes down to personal expression. Yeah, you know, definitely. It's, it's communication amongst humans. It harkens back to something very uh, primal. Definitely, yeah. No, And it, obviously, it clearly has a very important value in society and p- people's lives. So the irony of this you know, funding being cut is just disappointing, honestly. It's a very ironic intersection. So hoping that um, as we move forward and more more cases of the positivity and the benefits of this process of art therapy and the professionals that are not only trained but you know deeply engaged with these patients is given not only that recognition but also moving forward additional funding and acknowledgement of a license My bigger boat this episode goes out to the March of Dimes Nurse of the Year Awards, celebrating nursing excellence together for nurses who go above and beyond to deliver compassionate care. 
My sister Gail was nominated as one of the top four finalists in the state of Ohio. For the past 25 years, she has been the lead surgery nurse at the Cleveland Clinic Sports Health. She is a graduate of Ursuline College, in which she was a member of the National Honor Society for Nursing, known as Sigma Theta Tau. Both of these recognitions are a testament to her dedication to the art of nursing. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to another strong woman, Lauren Underwood. In a recent midterm election, Lauren won the Illinois 14th Congressional District primary, which is in Naperville, Illinois, with 60% of the vote. Not only was she a first-time candidate, she was also running against six men in the district that has never elected a woman, and she was the youngest person in her field running, also the only person of color. So in addition to all those accomplishments, Lauren is also a registered nurse and the former senior health advisor for the Obama administration. The reason I selected her as my bigger boat is because in that role in the Obama administration, she was a supporter of Obamacare. And when she was at a a public question and answer session in her hometown, the previous representative told everyone in the district that he wouldn't support a version of Affordable Care Act repeal that excluded protections for pre-existing conditions. She was so upset by this that she decided to run as a House representative. And that resulted in this amazing accomplishment that she achieved just this past week. My Bigger Boat goes out to Birthing Beautiful Communities, an organization in Cleveland, Ohio, that's dedicated to improving the lives of both soon-to-be moms as well as their babies through dedicated prenatal care and postnatal support. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to the World Health Organization, specifically in the Africa region as it has launched the first WHO Africa Innovation Challenge, which is calling for health innovations um, throughout the continent. This competition is open to people to submit um, healthcare solutions in product, service, and social innovation. The goal is to promote homegrown solutions to address health challenges in reproductive, maternal, and child health, infectious diseases, non-communicable diseases, and other key areas. And the hope is that this challenge will spark the entrepreneurial spirit of innovators and lead to credible health innovations across the continent. In the time since we recorded our last podcast, unfortunately, there was a very hateful act that took place in the United States at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And so this episode, we're supporting two organizations, both the Tree of Life Synagogue, where a 3,000-year-old tradition meets a five-year-old's curiosity, as well as Hyas, who welcomes the stranger and protects the refugee. Both of these organizations were targeted and unfortunately were involved in the greatest attack on Jewish Americans in our history. And we are highlighting them because we hope that hate of all kinds is something that we can work together as a nation to diminish and create a more peaceful world. To learn more about Tree of Life Synagogue, you can go to tolls.org. And to learn more about HIAS, visit hias.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at sharkandminnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.